We're in the middle of a sermon series on the life of Joseph in the book of Genesis. Um, and in just a second, we'll have our reading. Um, but since last week, we've skipped forward a couple of chapters. So I wanted to summarize very briefly what's happened um, so that this, reading, this week's reading makes sense. So very briefly, the story so far. Last week, we left Joseph as the prime minister of all Egypt. He had correctly interpreted Pharaoh's dreams, and there had been seven years of huge bumper crops, and then the years of famine had begun. The famine had reached Joseph's family in Canaan, and Joseph's older brothers have come to Egypt to find food. They have no idea that Joseph is still alive, much less that he's second in command. They arrive, they throw themselves at his feet asking for food. Joseph recognizes them immediately, but doesn't tell them who he is. He accuses them of being spies, and in order to prove that they're not, they have to bring their youngest brother, Benjamin, back again, back to Egypt. They go home, they eat all the food that they had to eat, and then they need more food, so they come back again, and this time, they persuade their father, Jacob, to let Benjamin come too. This time, Joseph welcomes them with a feast. The brothers are about to head home the second time when chapter 44 starts. So Tim is going to come and read chapter 44 for us. Now Joseph gave these instructions to the steward of his house. Fill the men's sacks with as much food as they can carry and put each man's silver in the mouth of his sack. Then put my cup, the silver one, in the mouth of the youngest one's sack along with the silver for his grain. And he did as Joseph said. As morning dawned, the men were sent on their way with their donkeys. They had not gone far from the city when Joseph said to his steward, go after those men at once. And when you catch up with them, say to them, why have you repaid good with evil? Isn't this the cup my master drinks from and also uses for divination? This is a wicked thing you have done. When he caught up with them, he repeated these words to them. But they said to him, why does my Lord say such things? Far be it from your servants to do anything like that. We even brought back to you from the land of Canaan the silver we found inside the mouths of our sacks. So why would we steal silver or gold from your master's house? If any of your servants is found to have it, he will die and the rest of us will become my Lord's slaves. Very well then, he said. Let it be as you say, whoever is found to have it will become my slave. The rest of you will be free from blame. Each of them quickly lowered his sack to the ground and opened it. Then the steward proceeded to search, beginning with the oldest and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. At this they tore their clothes. Then they all loaded their donkeys and returned to the city. Joseph was still in the house when Judah and his brothers came in, and they threw themselves to the ground before him. Joseph said to them, what is this you have done? Don't you know that a man like me can find things out by divination? What can we say to my Lord, Judah replied? What can we say? How can we prove our innocence? God has uncovered your servant's guilt. We are now my Lord's slaves, we ourselves and the one who was found to have the cup. But Joseph said, far be it from me to do such a thing. Only the man who was found to have the cup will become my slave. The rest of you go back to your father in peace. Then Judah went up to him and said, please, my Lord, 
Let your servant speak a word to my Lord. Do not be angry with your servant, though you are equal to Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servants, do you have a father or a brother? And we answered, we have an aged father. And there is a young son born to him in his old age. His brother is dead and he is the only one of his mother's sons left. And his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, bring him down to me so I can see him for myself. And we said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father. If he leaves him, his father will die. But you told your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you will not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him what my Lord had said. Then our father said, go back and buy a little more food. But we said, we cannot go down. Only if our youngest brother is with us will we go. We cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. One of them went away from me, and I said, he has surely been torn to pieces, and I have not seen him since. If you take this one from me too, and harm comes to him, you will bring my gray head down to the grave in misery. So now, if the boy is not with us, when I go back to your servant, my father, and if my father, whose life is closely bound up with the boy's life, sees that the boy isn't there, he will die. Your servants will bring the gray head of our father down to the grave in sorrow. Your servant guaranteed the boy's safety to my father. I said, if I do not bring him back to you, I will bear the blame before you, my father, all my life. Now then, please let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy, and let the boy return with his brothers. How can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? No, do not let me see the misery that would come upon my father. Well, as I said before, we're in a sermon series on Joseph. Uh, this is the penultimate section for us, um, and as you heard, our passage this evening ends on a bit of a cliffhanger. Joseph's brother Judah makes a passionate plea, but we don't know um, yet how Joseph will respond. That's next week, chapter 45, um, which is the great resolution of Joseph's whole life, really. It's like this great thunderclap at the end of the book of Genesis. It's really exciting. That's next week. But tonight, our passage isn't so much about Joseph as it is about his brothers, and as their particular representative about Judah. Judah is the one who gives the long speech that takes up about half of our passage tonight. It's one of the longest speeches in Genesis, and one of the most passionate. So we're going to focus this evening on Judah and his speech. Judah here is given something of a second chance, and he passes the test with flying colors. This passage is, among other things, a portrait of a changed man. Now, as we dive in to Judah and his um, changed life, will you pray with me as we start? Father God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that it has as much life and power in it tonight as it has ever had. And we pray that you would speak to us this evening. We pray that you would show us more of who you are and more of the life you would have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. 
okay now. So, just as we start, um, we will have to jump around a little bit the previous two chapters, chapter 42 and 43, as well as chapter 44. So keep your Bibles open if you have them open at chapter 44, um, and verses from other chapters will appear as if by magic on the screens, okay? Uh, as we kick off our examination of Judah, it's worth saying at this point that Joseph's behavior in this chapter and those proceeding is a little bit mystifying. <laughs> he seems to play the ruthless and unscrupulous governor perfectly. He exercises his power. He's manipulating the situation to his brother's distress. And while we would love to pick over this and read all kinds of possible motivations into his actions, the text actually doesn't tell us why he does what he does. Maybe it's a test. Maybe it's a chance to push his brothers around a little bit. Maybe it's all for the aim of seeing his brother Benjamin, or indeed his father, again after so many years. We're not told his motivations, but we are told about his emotion. What's very clear is that even while Joseph is the all-powerful governor, he's also battling with deep emotion as he meets his family again. Twice in these chapters, he's so moved to tears, he has to leave the room in order to weep. But whatever his reasons, Joseph's behavior here puts Judah and the rest of his brothers under extreme pressure. But they are also presented with a rather stunning example of a second chance. And they, particularly Judah, take it well. They take it with humility and repentance. And when I read this account of Judah and his speech, I think Judah has something that I want. I read this and I thought, I want that. I want that. I don't know what in the world makes you think, oh, I want that. Every advertisement um, out there in the globe is basically designed to make you want something or other ice cream or a new item of clothing or something like that. Sometimes it's not so much an object as it is an attitude. I came across this particular ad um, last week, which took my fancy, so here we go. I just, I love that attitude. I want that sass in my life. I want that kind of confidence. That is the kind of attitude um, I want to have. Equally, Judah, <laughs> in a rather different example, has something, an attitude that I want. When I look at Judah here on his knees, I think I want that. Why? What is so compelling about Judah here? Judah is a changed man. He's radically different. He's a radically different man to the arrogant brother consumed by jealousy that we met a few chapters back. He's a changed man. And when I look at how he's changed, I think to myself, I want that. Now, to be specific, there's three things that changed in Judah, three ways he's changed, and we're going to take them each in turn. First, Judah doesn't dodge. Judah doesn't dodge anymore. Have a look at verse 16 with me. This is in chapter 44, if you've got it open. Judah says, God has uncovered your servant's guilt. So far in the story, the brothers have gotten away with what they did to Joseph. Their father, Jacob, believed their lie about Joseph's disappearance. It's been over 20 years, and so far they've got away scot-free but it's, been, it's clearly been weighing on their minds. They're suffering from a very guilty conscience. It jumped out in chapter 42. When they first came to Egypt for food, Joseph is pretty rough on them. 
And they immediately, I mean immediately, assume they're being punished for what they did to Joseph. They've got no reason to think the two events are linked. There's 20 years between them. They don't know that Joseph is alive right in front of them. But, they, but their mi- minds jump there immediately. If we can have the next slide, this is the verse. Surely, they say, surely we are being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life. But we would not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And then, then, when Joseph eventually gives them grain and sends them off home, he also, without their knowledge, gives them their money back. He hides it in their grains of their sacks of grain. And they're on their way home. They crack open one of these sacks, and lo and behold, there's their money. And look what happens next. Next slide, please. Their hearts sank, and they turned to each other trembling and said, what is this that God has done to us? What an odd response to a perk. If you get money off, off your pret sandwich or your cost of coffee, does your heart sink within you? Do you start trembling? Why do they freak out like this? Everywhere they look, there is their guilt. They are so afraid that even what looks like a perk, they assume to be a punishment. And they're not just feeling guilty generally. They don't generally feel ashamed of themselves. They understand that what they did all those years ago matters to God. They say, what has God done to us? Judah says, God has uncovered our guilt. They didn't give God a second thought before. Back in chapter 37, when they planned to kill their brother and in the end sold him as a slave, God doesn't feature at all. They don't mention him. They don't consider him. But now they understand that God has seen what they did, that they have wronged God as well as their brother, and that God has a right to punish them for what they did. They are aware of their guilt before God. Judah knows something that the writer of the Hebrews wrote. Next slide for us is from Hebrews. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And the brothers, with Judah as their spokesman, don't run anymore from what God has uncovered. Their jealousy, violence, and deceit is laid bare before God, and they know they must give account. Granted, it's 20 years late, but it's not too late. They're not running anymore. Judah is aware and owns his guilt before God. Judah doesn't dodge anymore. And I want that. Why? Well, because the experience of having sin uncovered is not a pleasant one. When we see our selfishness in the plain light of day, it is not a pretty sight, and we try all sorts of impressive gymnastics to cover it over again. We pass the blame. We say at least we're better than so-and-so. We fear rejection or punishment. We loathe the assault on our pride. We call our sin our mistakes or failures or even our brokenness, which it is, don't get me wrong, but some of the words we use for sin make it sound like it's on a par with accidentally putting your jumper on backwards. But sometimes our behavior is ugly and selfish and arrogant, as Judah's was. And when it is uncovered as sin, 
Oh, that we would be brave enough to let it be so. Judah doesn't dodge. I want that courage. I want the courage to face what God would show me about my own behavior and say, it is uncovered. Judah doesn't dodge. The second way that Judah has changed comes in our chapter 44 at verse 34, right at the end, if we have a look. Judah has thrown himself into one of the longest and most passionate speeches in the book of Genesis, begging Joseph not to take Benjamin. And this is what he says right at the end there, verse 34, he says, how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? No. Do not let me see the misery that would come upon my father. This is the second change. Judah has a change of heart. Now he thinks of his father. He thinks of his father. He and his brothers didn't care about what they were doing to their father before. They only thought about how they could deceive him. They didn't care that they were breaking his heart. And I think this is one of the most astonishing things about this passage, because Judah thinks of his father. He wants to spare his father, even though his father hasn't changed. Why do they beg for Benjamin in particular? Because Benjamin is their father's favorite. Jacob has set his love on Benjamin just as he had done to Joseph. Jacob hasn't seen the error of his ways. He hasn't thought to himself, hmm, maybe favoritism isn't the way to go. He hasn't changed at all. He still has a favorite son and has made it abundantly clear he doesn't really care if anything happens to one of the other 10 as long as nothing happens to Benjamin. And Judah still thinks of his father, his unchanged partisan father who doesn't love him like he loves Benjamin. Judah has realized that the pain of his behavior caused other people his father in particular, and he won't do it again. He acknowledges that what he did um, to his father, he acknowledges what he did to his father, not just to Joseph and to God. And he is doing now what he can to love and take care of his father now. Judah now thinks of others rather than himself. This is a remarkable change of heart. He has a change of heart. And the third way that Judah's changed is this. He's had a change of behavior. He's had a change of behavior. Joseph has planted his cup into Benjamin's sack and then accuses all of the brothers of theft. The brothers are like, hey, we, we didn't take anything. Feel free to search us. That's fine. And with great suspense, Joseph's steward works his way down the line in age order. And there it is, the cup in Benjamin's sack. And when the brothers see it, they are distraught. They tear their clothes. They say, take all of us. And Joseph's like, no, 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 come on, who do you think I am? Look at verse 17. Joseph said, far be it from me to do such a thing. Only the man who is found to have the cup will be my slave. The rest of you go back to your father in peace. Joseph has or orchestrated a situation where, once again, the brothers have the opportunity to, to deposit their father's favorite son into slavery and walk away. Joseph gives them a second bite at that same apple they started 20 years before. But 
But this time, their behavior is different. They see the cup in Benjamin's sack, and they're not like, whoa, what a happy coincidence. That is terribly convenient. Now I can get shot of the other one too. No, they're distraught. There's no sign of the jealousy that consumed them before. They are trying everything they can do to protect Benjamin, not dispose of him. And it is Judah, Judah, who pleads for Benjamin's life. It was Judah's idea to sell Joseph into slavery last time. Back in chapter 37, we read this. Next slide, please. Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our flesh and blood. Judah, who thought only of his own gain. Judah, who so cruelly refused to acknowledge what it actually meant to be a brother. Here is Judah now, begging for his brother's freedom. And he goes so far as to say, in verse 33, he says, please let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy. Let the boy return with his brothers. Here is Judah pleading to give his own life for his brothers. This is a stunning example of a second chance grabbed with both hands. Judah has not only talked like he's had a change of heart, he's acting on it. His behavior demonstrates a 180 degree turn from what he did before. When presented with the perfect opportunity to repeat his sin, he throws himself in the opposite direction. The temptation becomes an opportunity to do the right thing. And it's not even that he's doing it for show, right? He doesn't know he's pleading with Joseph, the brother he so wronged before. He's not trying to impress Joseph. For all he knows, he is begging a perfect stranger. He's given a second chance, and he demonstrates a radical change of behavior. I want that. I want to be like Judah, because what he does here um, is something I want to be able to do. He finds himself in a similar situation, and instead of repeating bad behavior, he truly changes it. Instead of his selfishness and jealousy and arrogance being stuck on a loop, repeating itself, he has managed to get off of that particular train. He has truly changed in heart and in behavior. I want to be able to change like that. I wonder if you can identify with this at all. I wonder if you, like me, have cycles of behavior selfish, sinful behavior that you wish were broken. Some trains that you wish you could get off. What is it for you? Maybe there's a person, a colleague, or a family member, and every time you think, this time I won't get angry. This time I won't get defensive, I'll hold my tongue. But every time you lose it again. Maybe it's something on a night out, or a night in, <laughs> And you tell yourself, this time I won't X, Y, Z. And every time you find yourself repeating that behavior, do you find yourself on the same old train and you can't get off? What we see Judah doing here is a rare thing. 
It is not a rare thing to be ashamed of our past behavior. It is not a rare thing to regret. It is not a rare thing to wish we could be different. It is a rare thing to really change. It is a rare thing to, pay, to break a pattern of behavior that has been an inescapable loop. And you know, this passage of scripture, is it really a how-to passage? It's, um, it's not giving us a certain method or an explanation. It's more of a what-could-be passage, a passage to raise our hopes and to show us what's possible. Because this type of change, this kind of change, is possible. This is the kind of change that God can bring us. Jesus did not come so that we could wish to be different. He didn't come simply to show us the way to eternal regret. He came so that we could really change. He came to look us in the eye, to uncover everything, and then forgive. He came to exchange our own, our own ugliness with his own astonishingly beautiful character. As far as the east is from the west, so far would he remove our sins from us. He would give us his very own spirit to transform us from the inside out. So, is there an area of your life or heart that you are struggling to change on your own? Is there a cycle of behavior or thinking that you can't break? Take heart from Judah. This kind of change is just the thing God loves to do for his children. Look at this courage he has, the kindness he has, the sacrificial love he has, this radical change of behavior. This could be ours. We've been talking a lot in the last few weeks about how God has been changing Joseph. But God isn't just focused on Joseph. He's also changing Judah. He's not just working with the wronged, but also with the wrongdoer. He's not just using Judah as a convenient plot device and then disposing of him. He's close to Judah too. He's working with Judah too. He would work with any last one of us if we were willing. No exceptions. If you know that God has been uncovering something in your life, don't dodge it. Let God shine his light on you. It is his kindness so that you can change, really change. If you know there's a cycle of behavior that needs breaking, ask for God's help. Don't give up. If temptation comes, make it an opportunity to do the right thing and not simply an inevitable repetition of the wrong thing. Ask for God's help. Ask that God would do for you what he did for Judah and bring real change in your life. As he promises, God promises in his word, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us of all unrighteousness. Let me pray for us as I finish. Father God, thank you so much for this.
portrait of Judah as a changed man. Thank you for how he came to face what he'd done, for the way that he used to think of his father, for the way his behavior changed. Father, we thank you for this portrait. And we ask you, Father, that you would come and you'd work this kind of change in us. Would you make us brave to face our own sin where it needs facing? Would you renew our hope that you can change us? Father, we ask for your power and transformation in us that our lives might really change. Thank you so much, Father, that you'll come close to every last one of us, that none of us is tossed aside as a plot device, that you are committed to us, Father, we pray that we would know the freedom and joy of life with Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.